From the Ryerson Review of Journalism, this is Pull Quotes. I'm Jacob McNair. And I'm Laura Howells. This week on the show, news continues to emerge about the alleged serial killer who preyed on Toronto's gay village. We'll talk about the media coverage around this story, but we'll also talk to activist and writer Tim McCaskill about coverage of Toronto's queer community in the decades since the bathhouse raids, which just had their 36th anniversary. But first, from Patrick Brown to Kent Hare, allegations of sexual misconduct have racked Canadian politics in the past few weeks, thanks in part to some excellent reporting from Canadian journalists. But reporters can also experience that harassment themselves. Marie Danielle Smith is a politics reporter with the National Post. She recently wrote a candid piece about what it's like to be a female journalist on Parliament Hill. She talked about the time a senator asked her to sit next to him on the couch during an interview, or when an MP came up behind her, putting his hands on her waist on the dance floor at the press gallery dinner. We really wanted to talk to Marie Danielle about the piece, so we called her at her office in Ottawa. Marie Danielle, What has been going through your mind as these allegations have emerged over the last few weeks about sexual misconduct in Canadian politics? Um, It certainly makes you think about your own experiences and you start to have conversations with your friends about, you know, whether we've heard of any allegations before regarding the people who are being named. Other milder experiences that we may have had, these little moments that some people might label harassment, others might just kind of brush off in the moment, but you kind of recall any and all discomforts that you've had working around politics. You wrote about these discomforts in your piece in the National Post, and and you started off that piece talking about your mother, who worked as a staffer on Parliament Hill in the 80s and 90s. What did she tell you about her experience as a woman in politics during that time? Yeah, it's been interesting. And this actually goes back to the fall, you know, when we started hearing publicly a lot a lot more coming out with the, the Me Too movement and Harvey Weinstein and, and all these different names that started popping up. I remember going to my, uh, my parents' house and we were eating dinner and my mother started out of nowhere kind of reminiscing about what it was like back in the day. And she told a few stories where, you know, she felt a bit uncomfortable at the time but laughed it off. And it's funny because, you know, it didn't really it wasn't really easy for her to brush off because, you know, it's been decades and she still remembers. So there are a couple examples that she gave me. Uh, one of them is she was working um, in a senator's office and the senator who she was with, they were alone, um, sort of indicated that she should sit on his lap. He sort of gave gave a little pat on his lap and um, it was really strange and she kind of emphasized that none of her bosses ever did anything like that um, and that the work environment was respectful for the most part. But even even something like that was just kind of something that you had to brush off and, and you didn't really mention to other people. And she had heard from some of her female friends working in and around the Senate and the House of Commons that they might have experienced similar things or worse as well. Yeah. So that was the 80s and 90s and now few decades later, you're working in that same environment, but I mean, as a journalist, not a staffer. What have you experienced as a female reporter working on Parliament Hill? Yeah, so um, some of the things, you know, I have to say, they, they feel kind of minor. And, and it's, it's an interesting moment that we're having now where I think it's important that we speak publicly about some of these l- little things, as well as as more serious 
um, issues of harassment. But things that, that I can certainly point to are, are little comments here and there or little looks here and there, you know, um, people sort of um, overtly checking you out or uh, like I've had friends tell me that they've caught MPs like staring at their breasts at a party kind of thing. Um, just kind of these little interactions where someone in a position of, of power and who you're supposed to cover is is objectifying you or um, or causing you some discomfort. So uh, one example that I can give is uh, from a political convention that I attended. There was a former MP who was there. Uh, so he was quite, quite a bit older. He was about, I'd say he was a solid 40 years older than me. Um, and a couple interactions with him over the course of uh, 24 hours really stuck with me. He, um, he decided at a hospitality suite, which is like, these little parties that they set up um, during the evenings at a convention in hotel rooms. He uh, decided to, uh, I wouldn't say he cornered me because I just kind of found myself next to him, but we were sort of standing alone in between crowds of people. And he decided to start telling me about being in a hot tub with naked ladies one time. <laughs> it was really strange and weird. And I thought, man, this is like, I need to get out of here. This is so random because we had just met. Um, and the next day he made a comment about my appearance in front of um, a male colleague who was also there. Uh, so just these little things, you know, you, you sort of, at the time, you sort of laugh it off. And you think, well, this doesn't, it's not a big deal. This hasn't affected me or my job. Like, I can, I can keep going. I'm not traumatized. Um, but these are the little things that happen all the time um, for young women who work on the Hill. And, and again, it's not every MP who's uh, an offender, you know, not everybody behaves that way, um, but there certainly are some. And those who, I think, perpetrate those kinds of little comments and little, these little power struggles that happen, they, uh, they do so with impunity because no one ever says anything. Yeah, your, your piece was really interesting because... I haven't seen a lot of writing from female journalists in particular talking openly about their own experiences of, of these kind of encounters on the Hill. Why, why don't you think we see more women in political journalism uh, talk about this kind of culture? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I felt a little bit like I was filling a void there. Uh, I think a big part of it is that, you know, we're trying not to be part of the story I think I called it in my piece one of those cardinal sins, you know. You don't want to put yourself in the middle of the action when it's your job to tell other people's stories. And we have seen a lot of journalists, female journalists on the Hill, speak with staffers and other women and tell their stories of harassment. But it's true that I don't think it matters what job you have. Um, if you're a young woman on the Hill, uh, older women as well, and also some young, young, and young men as well, um, these things happen. So I think I thought it was important to talk about. But yeah, I think it, it has to do with not putting yourself in the story. Um, and also you sort of risk, it's, it's a risk, right? You put yourself out there. You don't want to start rumors about yourself or have people look at you any differently when they approach you about a story or when you go to them for comment. So it's, I think it's, it's a bit risky and, you know, that doesn't mean it, that nothing is happening. I mean, you talk about the Hill being such a small place. There's 
also the, the concern maybe of you know burning a source or losing out on potential mm-hmm. scoops. And... Yeah, and I mean, you'll notice that I didn't name anyone in the piece, so there's, there's still concerns around that, you know, for sure. You talk about not wanting to start rumors, but you know, the Hill being a kind of rumor mill. I mean, how, how big of a role do, do rumors and, and whispers play in that environment? Oh, a pretty big role. Uh, and, you know, people who are involved with politics and political journalism, too, tend to love gossiping. You know, it's, it's, it's fun. And the thing is, sometimes we fail to consider um, the implications of gossip when it's of a sexual nature, for example. Um, the implications on on people's reputations. Um, I think that when we when we hunt for stories in politics, you know, a lot of a lot of stories start out as a rumor or a lead that we got just from a, a conversation, you know, at the bar or at a reception. So it's it's certainly part of the lifestyle and the way that we try to gather news here. Um, it's that social culture where you're dealing in off the record situations uh, much more often than I think journalists and other fora and a lot of those sort of off the cuff um socializing with with politicians and with other journalists is is how we develop um sources and find ideas for stories and that that whisper network and rumor mail is part of it we i think warn each other when we've encountered someone who's a bit creepy you know we'll tell we'll tell our friends or other female journalists, I'll, I'll mention when something weird happened with someone. And I think the same happens with staffers and MPs, for example. But yeah, like one thing I'll mention too is that he really, he really tried to be careful with um, the, the fact that so much consensual sex happens. It's just part of the culture, and you, you worry about things like, okay, like a staffer told me, I'd better not go out for drinks with this one person after a certain hour or... I better not join this person in their office for a private meeting after a reception because people are going to start whispering, even if nothing happens. Um, people are going to start starting uh, rumors. And uh, I've heard people talk about female journalists that way too, where they're like, well, uh, she wrote a pretty nice story about this one politician. Uh, I wonder if they're sleeping together. And people just kind of throw it right out there without thinking. And, and that's how it all starts. Yeah, you talk about how, how kind of, frequent consensual sexual relationships are on the Hill. I mean, and, and the extent to which that complicates the whole Me Too discussion when it comes to politics and sort of muddies the waters there. I, I think it does. And I just, I think it's sometimes missing from the conversations that we have. You know, the fact that consensual relationships are there means that, you know, they have to start somehow. <laughs> and it, it's, it sort of um, adds a sort of a different dimension to how we think about harassment and, and whether, you know, certain people who are perpetrating what we think is harassment may not see it that way themselves because maybe they've had some consensual experiences that began in much the same way. And I think that's part of that's part of the discussion and the nuance of all of this that we lose sometimes, especially when we're debating it on social media um, in places where we get this kind of echo chamber where everybody seems to fall on one side or the other, as, as we're seeing now, for example, with, with the allegations against Patrick Brown. There seem to be two camps and, and little room for uh, discussion in between. That's, uh, that's interesting, especially, I mean, on the other side of things, you're talking about a lot of the 
harassment and uncomfortable moments you experience as being kind of hard to put your finger on or, or maybe just weird moments that you might shrug off too that aren't sort of clear things you can point to or to as reportable offenses. Yeah, exactly. And then sometimes you think, well, should I report it because it's not that serious, quote unquote. Um, and you start to, you sort of go back and forth in your head and everyone will draw the line at a different spot. So it's, it's tough. And, and, you know, even when it comes to the consensual relationships that go on, not everybody has the same opinion of, of what's inappropriate. Um, for example, some people, and I'll use examples again from my mother in the, in the eighties and nineties, she remembers parliamentarians having affairs with their staff um, and this not being particularly uncommon or and not necessarily looked looked down upon either. She remembers one relationship actually um, resulted in a marriage. So, you know, it's 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 people draw different lines. And I think today you would certainly have some people arguing that any relationship at all between people at different levels of power is inappropriate. And you'd have others um, saying something quite different. So there's no consensus, and that makes it really difficult to figure out, you know, what's relevant to report and, and you know, what should just get left alone. CBC host Carol Off recently published a, a piece in The Globe where she talked about having, you know, similar experiences as a political reporter in the 80s. And she talked about how when journalists at the time spoke out, uh, they were ostracized and made a laughingstock of um, in Parliament, but also in the press gallery, um, and that reporters at the time were kind of complicit in this sort of toxic mm. political culture. How much support do you feel like reporters and people in political journalism lend each other now? Yeah, I think this old boys club mentality is on its way out. Um, what what Carol described, I think there's still a little bit of that. And, you know, and there's pockets of that that will continue to exist probably. But I'm in a generation of younger journalists on the Hill, um, my peers, mostly in their 20s and 30s, who are a very supportive bunch. And I think, you know, it's it may not be the best example, but even if I just think about the response that I received after writing my piece, uniformly positive across the board from colleagues in journalism. And I think that's kind of a sign that, you know, and I'm, I'm detailing stuff in there that that you know, would have been absolutely laughed off in the 80s and probably wouldn't have gotten written about. Um, I think it just shows that the culture is shifting ever so slightly and slowly. And that I think if I had, if a colleague of mine in the press gallery um, described an unfortunate incident with a politician, I'm sure that person would be surrounded with support. And I think, you know, we're starting to feel safer about bringing up um, all kinds of incidents, whether they're they're serious or, or not so serious. Well, the government now is debating this legislation that would strengthen harassment regulations uh, on Parliament Hill. But I mean, as we were talking about, so much of this toxic culture is in these little weird moments, um, and and there's all these other complicating factors. I mean, what do you think actually needs to change in order to create a better culture for women on the Hill? Um, I think more more women on the Hill would probably go a long way um, more women in positions of power and, and that's that's changing and and I don't mean to say that in an activist way but I think it's been proven that if you know if the ratio of women to men in a workplace is more even um, these types of 
behaviors are <laughs> more difficult to perpetrate and and people um people kind of have each other's back women have each other's backs so i think you know if we have more women involved in politics and i you know much of the press gallery is female we were pretty good for <laughs> for the gender ratio in the press gallery but more more female politicians would certainly i think change the political culture and as well just um feeling free to talk about these um, incidents without shame um, and without fear of repercussion. I think the idea that we are coming to a point where there's no shame in mentioning something weird happened with someone, um, no shame in sometimes naming um, the perpetrators of of more serious um, offenses, I think that goes a long way and We'll continue to probably see more stories emerge in the next weeks and months about people who are coming forward and and trying to sort of eradicate the hill in a way or eradicate politics of the, the kind of old boys mentality that would allow some of these things to take place um, unmitigated. That was National Post reporter Marie Danielle Smith. Last month, police arrested Bruce MacArthur and charged him with the death of five men with ties to Toronto's gay village. And there may be more victims. But as recently as December, police were saying there was no evidence that a serial killer was connected to the disappearances and deaths. Even though members of Toronto's LGBTQ community have been concerned for years about the wave of men who've gone missing from the village, Anthony Oliveira recently wrote an essay in Hazlitt called Death in the Village. It's a really beautiful and heart-wrenching piece, and it's also scattered with critiques of media coverage. So we called up Anthony, and we asked him what he thought of the media's response to this news. Um, I think the media response to uh, not just the serial killings that have been going on in the village, but um, a lot of the adjacent, and I think analogous, and systemic problems, the the murder of Tess Ritchie, um, the death of Alora Wells, are of a piece with what I think is the general public's response to the village and um, and also the police response to the village, uh, which has been uh, largely incoherent um, and inadequacy. Um, I think that the media are frequently well-intentioned in their approach to um, queer issues, but um, I think some of their worst habits tend to do damage to um, the quality of their reporting. Uh, the over-reliance on police report, um, the over-reliance on statements issued from above rather than any kind of on-the-ground uh, journalism. I think that the the response to uh, the Bruce MacArthur arrest has been uh, extremely indicative of uh, newsrooms that don't have queer people on staff. Um, watching them struggle to sort of even just characterize what MacArthur's relationship to these men was has been uh, unfortunately enlightening, I think. What do you mean by that? Um, I spoke to quite a few people who, uh, for example, were they were friends with um, some of the men who were slain. Um, they, <laughs> they may have slept with uh, them a few times, and the media doesn't seem to understand that that's actually 
quite a normal kind of relationship. That's a very, a lot of gay men have that sort of relationship with their friends. Um, They instead during the press conferences were sort of trying to figure out, well, what to call these men? Are they partners? Uh, Watching the the Kinsman sisters being asked questions about their brother's relationship with the killer, which they were not equipped to answer. Um, (laughs) I think that that's just one symptom of the, of the general problem. I think the media does its best, but I, I do wish I do wish it hadn't taken the police at their word quite so much throughout this investigation. Um, for at least a decade now, the the church and Wellesley community has been saying that there has been these killings are connected. There is a serial killer operating in the village, and uh, no one in the media really took them seriously because the police didn't take them seriously. You talked about in your piece this kind of fixation on Bruce MacArthur and the fact that he was a mall Santa. Um, what do you make of that? Uh, I did, yes. Um, I think that I understand the impulse to reach. One of the things the police did uh, in letting this story be reported is they left MacArthur's Facebook page up for a few days, which doesn't seem they seem to have learned from in the aftermath. Because when Tess Ritchie's killer um, was a, the arrest was made, Kaylin Schlatter, his entire online presence seems to have been scrubbed. Uh, because they didn't do that for MacArthur, uh, basically his life became sort of this mine for as uh, as much sensationalist material as was possible, including this mall Santa stuff. Um, I find the mall Santa thing very frustrating, and I think a lot of gay men find it frustrating because I think the reason the mall Santa thing became the fixation was it became a peg where people could say, oh... What if my kid had been in his lap? What if what if we went to the mall and a serial killer had dandled my 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 son or daughter on their knee? And I think that that was a way um, that is a way to see yourself as a victim of this killer, but it is a way to marginalize the actual people that he preyed on. Um, there's no way the mall could have known that the man they were hiring was a serial killer, and it's not really a germane detail in this story. Um, he wasn't targeting children. He wasn't targeting straight families. He was targeting gay men and making this about call, making him into the mall Santa killer um, is ghoulish in one direction, but is also incredibly marginalizing in another. That was Anthony Oliveira, a writer and academic in Toronto. Obviously, this has been a huge story since MacArthur was arrested, and we wanted to talk about the media coverage on the show. But when we were working on the episode, we also realized that this week marked the anniversary of another dark moment for Toronto's gay village, the bathhouse raids. On February 5th, 1981, police stormed four bathhouses in the village. Armed with crowbars and sledgehammers, they arrested hundreds of men and caused substantial property damage. The raids gave rise to huge resistance and galvanized the gay liberation movement. Tim McCaskill is an author and activist, and he was part of The Body Politic, a monthly queer magazine that was hugely influential in that movement. Thank you so much for talking to us today, Tim. Pleasure. The knowledge that uh, a serial killer has been targeting Toronto's gay village is, is huge and horrible news, especially for the LGBTQ community, and it's attracted a lot of intense media focus. And we, we wanted to talk about the media coverage, but... As I was doing research on Monday, I also realized that this week marked the 36th anniversary of the Toronto bathhouse raids. Yeah, and I mean, maybe I wasn't uh, looking in the right places, but it felt like there wasn't a whole lot of acknowledgement of that anniversary in the mainstream media. 
I don't recall there being anything about the anniversary. It seems that the event has receded so far into the past now that people tend to celebrate it, celebrate it, or talk about it on every five years or you know, every five years or so uh, becomes a, a significant date. But no, there hasn't been anything this year. And then, of course, the, uh, the gay news quota, I think, has been completely filled by the the uh, serial killer story at this point. You were involved uh, with the body politic at, right. at the time. Um, can you just briefly explain what, what that was? The body politic was, uh, called itself um, a magazine for uh, gay liberation. Uh, it uh, had its first issue, I think, in 1971 uh, and continued until uh, the mid-'87. And for that period, it was one of the world's most respected and best distributed um, uh, lesbian and gay newspapers. Um, you know, we had about still a little bit a third of our uh, our issues in Toronto, a third in the rest of Canada, and a third internationally. You know, it, it was really Canada's voice of, of gay liberation in those early years of the struggle. Mm. And, it, and it played a real key role in the resistance after the raids, too, right? That's that's right. I mean, the body politic, I mean, the, the story of that night, I got a call. I was just uh, falling to sleep from somebody, from Gerald Hannon, the body politic, who said, they're raiding the baths, you need to get down to the club baths right away. And so I grumblingly went out into a cold February night to find the police there carting people away and um, releasing some people. And so I think the body politic uh, played a major role uh, in terms of the response. The meeting that happened the next day happened to the body politic offices, and that was probably because it was one of the few lesbian and gay organizations in the city that actually had offices. Uh, so it was a place that people could actually meet. Can you just take me back to that, that night, like, um, you know, 36 years ago, mm. what it was like? Well, um, I was living at, um, you know, a gay men's communal house uh, at uh, Dundas and Sherburne, and so crossed Island Gardens to go over to the club baths. And when a roommate and myself got around the corner, uh, there was suddenly this gang of policemen. The metaphor that I remember using was they looked like a, a pride of lions that had just made its kill, and so they weren't interested in us at all. Uh, and they were releasing some people, um, having given them court uh, notices, court appearance notices, and uh, other people were being um, were handcuffed and being taken away in paddy wagons because they didn't have enough identification or whatever. So what I started doing was trying to interview people to try to find out what had happened inside. Uh, the first man I spoke to, middle-aged, he had a Portuguese accent. Uh, the way he was dressed, he looked like you know, an immigrant laborer. And he was almost in tears because he kept asking me, is my name going to appear in the paper? Is my name going to appear in the paper? Right? And because that was a big fear of many people, that the papers would would publish all the names of the people arrested. And you know, he could tell from his reaction that this was something that was going to destroy his life uh, if if uh, his his family or his community found out that he was had been arrested in a gay bath. So uh, you know, I was there most of the most of the night, and then the next morning there was this meeting at the body politic office to try to figure out what in the world we could do. I had been to bed early because I had an exam at the U of T the next morning, and so after my exam I raced down to the the papers offices as well, and the meeting was just sort of coming to an end, and they had decided to 
hold a demonstration that night at um, Young and Wellesley at midnight. And I can remember thinking, that's absolutely crazy. Uh, you, how do you organize a demonstration in, at that point, less than 12 hours? You know, there's no, there's no, there's no Facebook, there's no um, email. But there was a, this young dyke who worked for the body politic named Chris Birchill who said, no, it's got to happen tonight. People are riled up. We can't, uh, we can't hold off. There has to be an immediate response. And everybody knows about this, so don't worry. And so when I went down, I, they put me on the marshalling team, and I went down the night of the, uh, the 6th to the demonstration thinking, you know, God, if there's only 50 people here, the police are going to, they're going to kill us, right? They're just going to, they're going to wipe us out because it's the middle of the night, nobody can see, right? Demonstrations are basically held in the daytime because, A, the movement demanded visibility because gay people were largely invisible in those days, but B, because it was safer. People couldn't beat you up in broad daylight the way the way they might at night. And also holding it at Young and Wellesley. I mean, Young Street is straight bar land. And so once the straight bars started emptying out, that was prime queer bashing time in the evenings. And so people always needed to be careful. Organizing a demonstration at that time in that place was really quite audacious. And I thought, <laughs> foolhardy. But as it turned out, there were not just 50 people there. Um, what I hadn't realized was that people were so worked up. Runners went out to all the bars, and it was a Friday night, so uh, people were in the bars and saying, come out, there's a demonstration, you've got to be there. And we had several thousand, maybe 3,000 people in the street by shortly after midnight. How do you remember the mainstream media's response uh, to that riot and, and to the raids? Well, it was front-page news in, in the Star, and I suppose the Sun. Nobody read the Sun because it was so homophobic in those days. It still is, generally. And so... You know, it was big news. A riot in Toronto doesn't happen every night, right? Uh, so I think there was also a certain amount of sympathy for the first time for for a community because the police tactics had been so extraordinarily heavy-handed. You know, they marched in, um, they kicked down doors instead of simply opening them. They uh, ripped lockers off the walls with crowbars instead of asking people for the combinations. Uh, one bath. There was so much damage that it had it basically had to close because uh, the uh, cost of renovating it afterwards was going to be so expensive, and no bank would lend them any money because this was a place that was under under charges. So I think among the good citizens of Toronto who expect the police to be you know officer friendly, to see this kind of violence let loose against uh, a particular community uh, who, as people said, were you know, in their in their own spaces, um, not bothering anybody else, was a bit of a shock. And uh, I think much of the mainstream media sympathized with the community's uh, reaction, and also was surprised by the amount of militancy that the, that reaction in, in, engendered. Do you think it marked a kind of turning point in in how the queer community was covered? In- oh, definitely. I, I definitely think all of a sudden. I mean, we the only way that a gay story was covered when, was when there was like. Uh, a sex arrest or a murder or something, right? I mean, the gay community was indelibly written into people's minds as associated with uh, sex and violence and sleaze. And so for the first time, uh, we were seen as, I suppose, victims of police brutality, but also a community that was willing to to come out and be militant and demand its rights and demand the end of that kind of behavior. 
and the community that at that point uh, developed alliances with um, black communities and South Asian communities who were also facing a lot, a lot of police racism and violence in those days. And so I think the media began to realize that Toronto had a serious problem with the way policing was done, and uh, all minorities were being caught up in this. So after that, how did you, or how do you remember media coverage changing in, in the subsequent years and decades? Well, the, the big fight right after the bath raids was uh, there was a, a report, finally. A report was done for City Hall called the Bruner Report, and they called for many recommendations. But one of the recommendations was that the police recognize uh, the lesbian and gay community as a legitimate community in Toronto, and the police absolutely refused to do that. And so the police intransigence they dug themselves deeper and deeper and deeper, and so the media, I think, became more and more, um, more and more sympathetic. And remember, this is '81. '81 uh, is also the year that AIDS starts to happen in the states. It doesn't really begin to have a, a kind of a, a conscious impact on the public until probably '83 or '84 in Canada. So the bath raids produced a kind of a sympathetic stance to. Um, to the community by much mainstream media, and then this notion of an epidemic, which was two-sided. On the one hand, gay men were seen once again as victims of this terrible disease. On the other hand, there was a relinking of homosexuality with disease and death and illness. Uh, And so the media struggled with those two tropes for, for many years. By the end of the 80s, um, kind of the celebrity culture, the Elizabeth Taylors and the Hollywood stars had begun to come out, develop the red ribbon, the notion of the red ribbon. And so there was this recognition that this was a, a beleaguered community that needed to be supportive, uh, supported and that uh, a community that, in fact, was struggling to take care of its own members who were, who were, who were ill and, and dying. And then AIDS activism burst onto the scene as well. And so once again, you had this kind of people being militant and out and in your face and demanding our rights as human beings. That as well began to carry the media story and changed media's um, understanding of the community uh, in relatively profound ways. And by the time we're into the the mid-90s, then the struggle is around spousal benefits and gay people not as some sort of strange other monster but people just like you are like everybody else who just want to get married and settle down right and so there's a kind of homonormative uh, trope in the media that um, began to see gay people not as something to be feared but something really ordinary and citizens like everyone else and when bad things happened to those citizens then the community like the broader community needed to rally around Now, of course, you know, in the last few weeks, there's again been intense media coverage around the gay community with um, the news of the, the serial killer targeting the community. And, mm-hmm. and I mean, there's there's similarly been criticism around how uh, police have responded to the missing men and, and to the murders and whether or not they, they took some of these disappearances seriously enough. Yeah. What do you make of the media coverage you're seeing now and, and what it says about the media's relationship with this community? I mean, it's certainly a real change from the from the 80s. One of my criticisms of the media coverage is that they haven't had much to say for a long time, and so they keep repeating the same story over and over and over again because they want to keep it in the news because it's a big story. But on the other hand, actual details are leaking out very, very slowly. 
on the other hand, the media has certainly covered events like the Metropolitan Community Church's uh, candlelight vigil the other the other night, and that included talk of the way that police racism and homophobia have probably affected this this investigation. I mean, the first the first men, most of them South Asian men uh, or Middle Eastern men, disappeared. Uh, I think. Uh, 2010, like that's uh, eight years ago now, and it wasn't until um, the more recent murder that uh, police began to take this more seriously. People in the community have been saying, yeah, "There's something strange going on here." Like, where there's all these disappearances, and the police kept saying, "Oh, there's no sign of um, there's no sign of a serial killer. There's no no sign that these things may be connected." And then all of a sudden, bang! It was revealed that yes they did seem to be connected and it looks like the same person was responsible for all of them so uh the media often simply f- follows the police's lead you know they you write a, a media story based on the police report and if the police says there's no serial killer here then there's no story and the fact that people in the community are saying there's something more serious going on here well that isn't authorized talk, and therefore it doesn't make its way into the the story. You've got no one to interview there that has authority to say those kinds of things. I mean, you were talking earlier about an increasing kind of normalization of um, the LGBTQ community in the media throughout the 90s and the aughts. Um, I mean, do you feel at all like this, I think what's the term you use, like homonormativity? Do you feel like that gives a false impression of some of the real struggles or issues that are in the community or, or maybe kind of erases or, or leads the media to, I don't like talking about the media as kind of a monolith, but leads us to kind of forget about sort of how how recently things were so, so radically different? Yeah, and it's not just that things are so radically different in the past, but for many people, things haven't changed very much. You know the the couple on Modern Family, right? Who adopt the child, and you know, white gay couple who play with the stereotypes, but are accepted by their family. All of that kind of stuff. You know, it, that's not the life that many many people still live. And we're a society that's now much more disparate, with much more disparity than in the 70s or even or even in the 80s. People are, are really really much poorer now. Fifty fifty percent of the people in Toronto are uh, working in precarious jobs according to according to reports and the you know 50% of the population as well i think is um is living in what's considered poor areas and so the kinds of stresses that come from poverty and racism and you know being an immigrant in a often unwelcoming society and being queer on top of that many people don't feel that their their lives are normative right because they're not quite white, they're not middle class, they don't have good jobs, right? They're struggling, and therefore uh, their sexual orientation or gender identity is kind of part and parcel of the things that they that they struggle with every day, and so they don't feel that they're ex- as accepted by society as the media would sometimes lead you to believe all gay people are. That was writer and activist Tim McCaskill, who was part of the body politic during the 70s and 80s. That's it for Poll Quotes this week. Poll Quotes is a production of the Ryerson Review of Journalism. And you can find more stories about journalism and media at rrj.ca. 
Get in touch on Twitter at PullQuotesRRJ or email PullQuotes at Ryerson.ca. This podcast is produced by Jacob McNair, Emily Pardo, and me, Laura Howells. Executive producers are Sonia Fata and Stephen Trumper. Special thanks to Angela Glover for all her technical help. Thanks for listening. See you next week.